0: It's Thursday, March 31st, 2022, final day of the month here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host, political editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor. I was on earlier with Bill Hammer and Dana Perino on America's Newsroom. That was fun. Also host of this fine program every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. The Guy Benson Show, coast to coast and on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That's the one spot for all of your program-related needs. GuyBensonShow.com We are live in Miami, Florida. Be here today and tomorrow. I'm in town for an event. It is gorgeous here. And it's fun to be still in the free state of Florida for the third consecutive show here today. Here's the lineup on the program. Later this hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire will be here. I'm going to want to ask her about booster shots. I saw the president got his fourth covid vaccine shot his second booster he of course is of an advanced age what does she recommend on that whole front we will ask her it feels like a must-ask question and relevant this week we will also catch up in the next hour with our colleague trey yinkst foreign correspondent at fox news he has been in the thick of it in ukraine he was in kiev he's seen a lot He was just at the funeral for one of our colleagues here at Fox, who was killed in that terrible attack from which Benjamin Hall is still recovering. Trey is in New York, and he will be in our studio there to talk about everything that he has seen in recent weeks. We will also, in our middle hour, talk to a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who is under fire, people are upset with him, as they have been his entire career. They're trying to take him out because of things that his wife said and did. Is that fair? Does that comport with any of the ethics rules that are applied to Supreme Court justices, no matter how objectionable the words of a spouse or actions may be? And in this case, I would say they are very objectionable, but that's not a reason to impeach a Supreme Court justice, at least in my book. But some House Democrats are insisting the opposite. Some major media figures are calling for him to be removed from the court. What does former Thomas Clerk Carrie Severino have to say? She will respond here a bit later. And in our final hour, Bill Malugin is at the southern border. He's in Eagle Pass, Texas. And we will ask him what he's seeing. The border crisis is ongoing it is unremitting, it is unmitigated, and it's about to get much, much worse. Even Team Biden is admitting it. We will get local flavor and color and color rather from him. Plus, what is he hearing from U.S. officials and Border Patrol agents on the ground? We have some audio to play for him as well that is relevant and related. So much to get to here on today's edition of The Guy Benson Show. Where we begin on the broadcast is on actually one of the subjects that I was asked to discuss on America's newsroom on Fox News Channel this morning, which was this Hunter Biden laptop story, which kind of feels like a throwback in some ways. Why are conservatives still talking about this? Well, because the media wouldn't talk about it in an honest way, wouldn't even cover it in a lot of cases back when it would have been more relevant. Right When you cover something up and censor something and lie about it and engage in lazy, unsupported assertions like, oh, that comes from Russia, it's disinformation, and you do that in the thick of a political campaign deliberately to punt it into the future, hoping that it goes away, then it doesn't go away. And when new information comes to light, some of it genuinely new, some of it's just like, oh, gee whiz. Look at this. You can't say, oh, this is now old news. I know that's the trick. Oh, this is old news. Look at these wingers. Look at these wingers who are obsessed with conspiracy theories. They can't stop talking about Hillary, and they can't stop talking about Hunter. Look, I have no idea whether this story is going to result in taking down Hunter Biden in some sort of legal way. We do know that there's a federal investigation into his various activities. And this week the report is from multiple news organizations that the investigation has ramped up and expanded. So as I postulated yesterday, I think some of these journalists, not including the one I'm about to quote, but some of these other journalists basically would love for this entire saga to be completely over and buried, which is what they tried to do to it back in 2020 when there was an election for their side to win, their side being the Democrats because they're all Democrats. But now that there is a very serious, and there was at the time too, we didn't know it. It didn't leak. I think that's to the DOJ's credit, to Bill Barr's credit. It didn't leak, but there was a federal investigation active back then. It is really potentially coming to a head now and getting even more serious. And I think some of these sources are whispering to their buddies in the press saying, well, this isn't going well. You're going to look totally like idiots if these indictments all come down. You might as well start doing some reporting on this so it doesn't induce massive national whiplash. And so one reporter who I think is generally a straight shooter, she was a colleague here at Fox for many years, she's now at CBS, Catherine Herridge, here's what she writes at CBS, new details emerge about federal investigation into Hunter Biden. Quote, the federal investigation into Hunter Biden's business practices is broader than previously known, with multiple sources telling CBS News the probe is exploring whether the younger Biden and his associates violated tax, money laundering, and foreign lobbying laws. Business records reviews by, uh, reviewed rather, by CBS News and documents released by Republicans in Congress indicate Hunter Biden and his firm were involved in multiple financial transactions with a Chinese energy company. Republicans allege the company is an arm of the Chinese government, which is, you know, to varying degrees true of most major Chinese companies. In 2017, a year after Joe Biden left the vice presidency, an official with the Chinese energy company signed a one million dollar retainer for Hunter Biden's services as a lawyer. And the dollar amounts grew and grew in The Washington Post, as we told you yesterday, said it's close to five million dollars all in. And as I said on TV this morning, they don't even get half a clap from me for getting to a story a year and a half late. Because if they don't, they're going to be even more embarrassed, potentially, in the weeks or months to come. That's what's actually happening as I see it right now. And it is a scandal going to the heart of the collusion among big tech, big media, big Democrats, big intelligence. They all got together to decide to will this story out of existence back when it might do damage to the Biden campaign. And I frankly, I'll level with you, let's just, you know, be realistic here. I don't know and no one really knows whether this is the type of thing that really could alter the course of the Biden presidency. I don't know that if all of this had come out, if that would have changed the outcome of the election in 2020. I know there's this poll that suggests maybe it would have and people have buyer's remorse, but I think people have buyer's remorse on Joe Biden for a lot of reasons, okay? So, I'm not sure how much stake to put in retrospective polls like that. What I do know was it was a bona fide news story based on genuine information, a real authentic laptop, and a bunch of business documents that now the New York Times and the Washington Post finally are saying, oh yeah, you know, it wasn't Russian disinformation, it was actually real. That has been the biggest scandal in all of it. Bigger than whatever Hunter Biden might have been up to. You might disagree with that, but I think I make a strong case here. Even if Hunter Biden was doing the worst stuff and making all this money and in the pocket of China and that there was money set aside for his dad and all of it, that would be very bad. It would be a very significant story. I think a bigger scandal is all of the – that sort of array of powerful forces in our society coming together to decide collectively, strategically – that it was not a story that would not be covered, that would not get serious attention, that would be dismissed and poo-pooed and attacked as Russian disinformation based on zero evidence. The constellation of tastemakers in our society made that decision and enforced it ruthlessly in the closing weeks of an election. And then they've been forced to admit later that actually they were wrong the newspaper that reported it that got locked out of its own Twitter account for, what, weeks and weeks as punishment? They were right, the New York Post. The laptop was real. The documents are real. The questions are legit. And, you know, maybe we'll get to Tony Bobolinsky's existence getting reported in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times, what, next year after the midterms? That seems to be the pace at which they're finally coming around on stuff. And I bring up Tony Bobulinski, as Katie Pavlich did yesterday, because I will remind you. He was out there on the record as a close business associate confirming all of this stuff in some ways, implicating not Hunter Biden, but also Joe Biden, both of them. He was doing so before the election, October of 2020. And the only people who would listen were like Tucker Carlson, who got that big interview. Everyone else in the press laughed and called it another conspiracy theory. Who the hell is this guy? He's a guy who did a ton of business. That is like beyond dispute. It is a fact that he did a ton of foreign business with Hunter Biden and had access to a lot of stuff, emails, etc. Oh, but that was some weird crankery stuff. There go the wingers again. Pay no heed. We, the responsible, respectable journalistic community, know that this is not real, this is Russian disinformation, and therefore we will be respectable and responsible and bury it as deep as possible until roughly at least the first Wednesday in November. Right? It wasn't subtle. And they're very slow on the up, on the like on the on picking this stuff up, right they aren't really that eager, I think, to address any of it or revisit any of it. Slow on the uptake is the phrase I was looking for there a moment ago. I think they're being dragged into acknowledging it because their sources are warning of things to come, danger ahead from the d o j which is why it's getting suddenly unearthed, right? They're exhuming the corpse of this story. Like, oh, it's an empty coffin. Just bury it. Then they're exhuming it. Oh, wait, there's a lot of bones in here, actually. So at some point, maybe months from now, they will decide to maybe, maybe revisit Tony Bobulinski. Here is part of what he told Bobulinski, Tucker Carlson, back in October of 2020. This had a huge rating on Fox News Channel, but it was basically blacked out everywhere else. Cut 13.
3: I'm insignificant and irrelevant in this discussion. To them, it was always the Biden family. It wasn't Hunter Biden. It wasn't Jim Biden. It was the Biden family, who's obviously led and um, and operated by Joe Biden. And in a document that you guys have, and uh, I think it's been provided to you know to the world, the Chinese reference that because of their trust in uh, the Biden family, that Chairman Yi and Director Zhang are uh, excited about moving forward in this. And in that document, they reference loaning $5 million to the B.D. family. Right. The B.D. family is the Biden family. And notice they didn't say we're loaning that money to Oneida Holdings or we're loaning that money to Tony Bobolinsky or we're loaning that money to James Gilliar or Rob Walker. They, once again, not a document generated by me, a document generated by CFC, that they're loaning that money to the Biden family.
0: Then, in congressional testimony, Bobolinsky swore under oath some assertions and averrals about documents and emails that he personally was, like, looped in on, including the famous formulation, the big guy. This was under oath, again, before the election, in Cut 31. On May
3: 13, 2017... I received an email concerning allocation of equity, which says 10 percent held by H for the big guy. In that email, there's no question that H stands for Hunter, big guy for his father, Joe Biden and Jim for Jim Biden. In fact, Hunter often referred to his father as the big guy or my chairman.
0: So we keep hearing from the same people who poo pooed and ripped to shreds this story at the get go because it was potentially an existential threat to their preferred presidential ticket and their preferred political party. And they were worried that this might be Hillary's emails all over again. And in their mind, that means a fake story that hurts the Democrats. In fact, that was a real story and a real scandal for Hillary Clinton. They're mad that they covered it. They're like kicking themselves, self-flagellating for that. So the makeup, the makeup call here from the refs, Already guilty about hurting their side last time. They're not going to make that mistake again. So they bury this thing. And that you just heard? Well, that was a clip from Tucker Carlson. So ignore it. Oh, the second clip you just heard? That was from a Republican-run committee. They're partisan hacks. We don't have to pay attention to it. That was their position. That is how they did their journalism. That was some peak election-era journalisming in 2020. And here we are... Almost in April 2022, and the Washington Post sheepishly is like, well, golly, turns out it's authentic and a lot of this stuff is true. And for the the assertion or the comment or the claim that they keep making now, the new updated talking point is, well, ooh, ooh, this is concerning. there's there's, uh, there's some smoke. There's some smoke to this. Uh, this isn't over yet. Oh, how interesting. But there is still no evidence that any of this goes back to Joe Biden at all. Well, we don't really know that, do we? We actually do have some evidence. We just heard it from Bobolinsky in emails from this you know, Chinese company setting aside a portion of the money held by H. Hunter for the big guy who could be Joe Biden. That's a question that needs to be answered. And to say that there's no evidence, Biden himself said he never talked to his son about any of the foreign business dealings. We know that's not true. So they're still trying to exculpate Joe Biden and exculpate him saying he had nothing to do with this when we don't know if that's true or not. That's the scandal here. The media scandal is the biggest scandal involved in this saga. I'm late. I got to run. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
3: Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think.
0: Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadShow.com. I'm Guy Benson. Here's an Oh, By the Way story. We got caught up in the Hunter Biden stuff and the media scandal and... Went a little over time there, so I don't have much time in this segment. But headline AP Key inflation gauge sets 40 year high as gas and food soar. An inflation metric that is closely monitored by the Federal Reserve jumped 6.4% in February compared with a year ago, with sharply higher prices for food, gasoline, and other necessities squeezing Americans' finances. It's the largest year over year rise since January of 1982 so another four decade high on inflation oh by the way we will step aside when we come back dr nicole sapphire will be here on booster shots and more that's next on the guy benson show
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. It's a beautiful day here in Miami, Florida. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcast-free every day. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is now our guest, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author of Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Doctor, welcome back to the show.
5: Thank you for having me, Guy, even though I'm a little envious, you being in sunny Florida and me up in Jersey.
0: Well, you're welcome to come down. Come for the weekend. <laughs> we can hang out. Uh, just, yeah, get your husband, get on the plane. We'll see you here. Um, I want to start with the president yesterday. He kind of, sort of announced an end to the pandemic as an emergency, at least for now in the process of getting his fourth COVID vaccine shot. I feel like maybe that's the closest we'll get from an administration like this one to saying that the pandemic as this ongoing emergency is behind us. What do you think of that, A? And B, it seems to me that based on the data, he's the type of guy that would be best served by another booster shot, what is your recommendation in terms of who should be prioritizing that and who maybe should wait for more data or hold off
5: great questions uh, first of all i think it was really imperative for the president to come out and kind of temper some of the fear and anxiety that you know has has really just been you know, habitual of coming from the White House and the CDC for the last year and saying, listen, we are finally into this next phase of the pandemic. You know, something that we've been talking about for a while, this virus is becoming endemic. That zero COVID, COVID—that that's not going to happen. It's still it's never going to happen. So where are we at right now? And as you mentioned, the FDA and CDC have now just come forth recommending fourth boosters or making them available to people. And the older a person is, the larger the benefit of these additional boosters will be. As we know, severity of illness directly corresponds to the age of the person, as well as comorbidity. So the president, uh, close to 80 years old, the data is clear. There's a couple of studies out of Israel demonstrating um, those over 70, those over 80, they did have benefit um, in getting a fourth dose in terms of hospitalization and death. Mind you, that study only had about a 40-day follow-up. So just like the other doses, I imagine, and it will wane. Um, But at least we know in the short term, it's going to be protective. Um, You know, the data isn't necessarily there for other people, such as those who are, you know, between 50 and 60 years old. It's a little bit more murky at that point. And if you look at some of the CDC's wording, they have said that people are now eligible to get a fourth dose. They didn't necessarily say, come down hard saying they should get one. They're just saying they're eligible for one. Um, so I think it really is going to come down to the individual. I think for me, the data is pretty clear. If you're over the age of 65, you're, you're going to benefit from a fourth dose, especially those who have medical comorbidities. If you are a younger person but you have coexisting conditions like diabetes, obesity, and whatnot, you know, you should talk with your doctor and you may benefit from a fourth dose. Of course, what they forget to talk about, what about the people who are fully vaccinated or even boosted who've recently recovered or have had COVID? They're negating that whole natural immunity factor, which in itself is a booster.
0: So you think if you've had COVID, that counts as a booster in your book?
5: In my opinion, not only does it count as a booster, I have a feeling that it probably produces a more um, robust response that will have more protection for future. Like a super variants. booster,
0: a super booster for absolutely. From nature.
5: Because you have to remember, these boosters are they were formulated on the original variants of this virus. If you have had COVID during Delta or Omicron or even the, this newest subvariant, you now have immunity towards a more evolved virus. So you probably have more immunity for what's currently circulating.
0: We have seen some disturbing stuff out of China. Again, they're doing some really major lockdowns. They've got this subvariant spreading like wildfire over there. And one of the factors that I was – Maybe not shocked to see, but still, given the emphasis that so many people have put, including you just did this minutes ago, on the importance of getting particularly older people vaccinated, the number, just the massive number of senior citizens in China, Hong Kong, that, that whole area, who are not fully vaccinated uh, or, or vaccinated at all. That is an astounding number to me, and I guess they're freaking out and you know doing these hard lockdowns again. Because if you get wild spread of this new variant, which overall, you know, is much less deadly in places like the United States or Europe or the U.K. or whatever, if you've got a population with tens of millions of unvaccinated older people, that could be a real catastrophe for them. Yes. I mean, I'm just amazed how far behind they are. And they, of course, have worse vaccines as well.
5: Undoubtedly. I mean, you just hit on many points, and you have to remember, everything that's coming out of China, we don't really know. These are right. just guesses, right. um, you know. because as we know, the Chinese Communist Party kind of keeps things very close to the vest. We know that while they have said that they were going to approve the mRNA BioNTech uh, Pfizer vaccine, they have yet to do it. Then they said that they were developing their own mRNA vaccine. They have yet to do that. Um, So even the people who have been vaccinated have been vaccinated with a subpar vaccine that has not demonstrated the same efficacy that the mRNA vaccines. And then on top of that, they were not necessarily targeting the highest risk populations, those of the elderly, and um, China has a very large elderly population. And then thirdly, on top of that, because they have done such strict lockdowns and they have have not somewhat let the virus run its course, infecting the healthier, younger populations. They have a much lower level of community natural immunity. So those are three things working against them, and they are they are in a very bad situation for these increased cases. But I can tell you, thankfully, it is with a, more, a lesser virulent variant. But that being yep. said, just the sheer number of infections alone will cause a drastic amount of hospitalization and possibly death. So,
0: yeah. And, uh, and we know, may never know, know about how situation. bad it gets. right? Even if it gets extremely bad, we might not get a full picture of that because the government over there will do everything it's can, it can within its power to kind of censor that and sweep it under the rug because they don't want to get that sort of bad publicity. That's what authoritarian governments do. And by contrast, here in the United States, based on the CDC numbers, 95% of Americans over 65 have had at least one shot of superior vaccines here, 95%. That really is an achievement, and that's a big, big difference, especially if things get ugly over there. And, of course, you know, I, I can't stand their government in China, but we are rooting and praying for the best for the, for the Chinese people. You, you don't want to see a mass casualty event that could occur because of the incompetence, at least in part, of the regime. Last question, Dr. Sapphire, and it goes to a topic that I covered this week, in my one-on-one exclusive interview with Governor Ron DeSantis here in Florida. And the day that I sat down with him, it was Tuesday, he had just announced a lawsuit the state of Florida was filing against the Biden administration on mask mandates that continue on federally regulated forms of transportation, so airplanes in particular. He was like, enough of this. He said there's... No rational basis anymore for these types of requirements and mandates. The data does not support any of it. This is crazy. We're filing suit. That's the legal side of things. And I think there's certainly a medical component to it as well in the data that he was referencing. But, I mean, it, it does feel like it's this last vestige of our society where you step foot into an airport and all of a sudden, you know, the mask crackdown is back with a vengeance For no apparent reason, especially on airplanes themselves, from a medical standpoint, weigh in on that if you would.
5: As I have said many times from the very beginning, we there were institutions of restrictions based on a lack of information. Well, fast forward two years, and we have a lot of information now. We we know exactly how this virus is transmitted. It's largely respiratory uh, and at some aerosolized particles. We also know that cloth masks really do nothing, and that's what a lot of people that you see on airplanes on transits are actually doing. Um, and then on top of that, we have a huge amount of population immunity in terms of vaccines, boosters, and natural immunity. At this point going forward, we also know who is the most vulnerable to this virus. So these universal restrictions and universal mask mandates truly make no sense. However, anybody who considers themselves high risk or feels more comfortable wearing a mask, they should absolutely wear a quality medical grade mask mm-hmm. in settings where they are in indoors amongst people that they don't know. But at the end of the day, for everybody to wear a mask, it really it goes against just public health in general general and it is important for us to regain this level of normalcy with the people who are more vulnerable and those who want to can continue to wear masks but again the general population there the mask mandates at this point are futile and we don't even have evidence demonstrating that they have really done much good anyway
0: dr nicole sapphire medical doctor senior fox news medical contributor her book is panic attack doctor thanks for carving some time out of your schedule today we'll talk soon
5: Thanks for having me, Guy. Enjoy Florida.
0: (laughs) Thank you. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. We'll go to California, not physically, but a story out there that I talked about on TV earlier. There is uh, quite a soundbite from a member of Congress that you may have heard of. We'll get to that when we return.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Back on The Guy Benson Show. So this is a story out of California, and Dana Perino asked me about it on TV this morning. There was a New York Post report about this. There was a chaotic event in Southern California in Los Angeles near a homeless encampment where hundreds of homeless people showed up based on false social media reports that some housing vouchers were being distributed. So there's this rumor that gets going. The government people are here. They're giving out money, basically, for housing. And understandably, people are like, let's go and get some of those vouchers. So there were hundreds of homeless people who all descended on this area with the false hope that there was something there for them. Now, one of the politicians who was present was Congresswoman Maxine Waters. And things were a little out of control. And she then, in all of her infinite wisdom, to try to disperse the crowd, urged the homeless people to go home. Cut 19.
3: Everybody to go home. And I want no. Okay. Okay. That's why we're here, okay. Miss McIntyre. Yeah. Miss Waters, where home we me, gonna least go to? And there's here. nobody in Washington oh, okay. who works for their people in a harder no. no. than I do. I believe you. I don't you. want to hear no. that. I believe you. So can know. we finish? No.
0: No. 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 So she tells them to go home. One of the women, I think, astutely points out, we don't have homes. That's why we're here. And then Waters gets indignant. No one in Washington's working harder for you people than me, so I don't want to hear it. Isn't that compassionate? And this is just the perfect Maxine Waters story because she's clueless, she's out of touch. She's been in Congress for seemingly, you know, forever. So that's one way to get super out of touch, super quickly, in case you're really careful about it. She's not. She also, in the moment, gets sort of angry and defensive talking about how great she is when people are upset that she just told them to go home when they don't have homes because they're homeless. That's the definition. And they had their hopes up for something, and she's like, no, no, go home. And when questioned on that, it gets, like, aggressive on her part. There is a bit of an empathy problem there. And she goes again to her credentials, her progressive credentials as the political defense. Now, I should point out, it's not exactly stunning by any stretch of the imagination that this is a woman with an empathy gap. After all, this is the same woman in Maxine Waters who very famously publicly advocated that members of the Trump administration be hounded, berated, and attacked in public. Right? She said that on a megaphone to a mob. So the idea that she might not be the most empathetic person out there is, again, not exactly a Fox News alert here. This is who she is. But there's another element to this on top of just the, as I called it on TV this morning, the notable quotable telling homeless people to go home. And then the immediate obvious rejoinder from one of them, we don't have homes. That's the point. And she starts like wagging her finger at this woman about how hard she works and how she's a progressive. And that's the thing. This is the most progressive state in the country in a lot of ways. It is. Run by Team Blue completely. It is one-party rule. It has been for years. The progressives can do what they want out there, and the result is a big housing crisis and a massive homelessness homelessness problem. In addition to all the crime and other issues out there. So the progressives have free reign. There's not a racist Republican in sight to crimp their style. And the result has been one failure after another because of their policies. But it's their adherence to that ideology that they resort to, that they retreat to, as their excuse when they're failing people. Right? They believe that just being on the team is equivalent to, tantamount to, carrying a card that says, I'm one of the good people. See, look, you can see what party I'm in. This is what we do. Look how wonderful our intentions are. The fact that you're here looking for help from me and I can't give you the help that you're expecting and you have nowhere to live, that's not, you know, my problem really. Why don't you back off and go home? Can't you see I'm a progressive? But there's one more layer to this that I interrupted myself before I got to and this makes it, again, sort of peak Maxine Waters. Maxine Waters. There was a journalist from the Los Angeles Times who wanted to report on this incident that occurred, this fracas. And Waters warned the journalist not to report about it. She did not want this to get more attention. And so when this reporter contacted Waters about the event, this according to FoxNews.com, The congresswoman reportedly tried to dissuade the paper from running the story. Quote, this is her telling the reporter, you'll hurt yourself and the community trying to put this together without background. She told Connor Sheets, according to the Los Angeles Times, and good job that they actually reported this. Quote, I don't want you to start trying to write it. You won't understand it. See, it's just it's just way too. Complicated for mere journalists to understand. Maxine Waters, she understands the the texture of this and the complex tapestry of this incident that the Los Angeles Times couldn't possibly report. But I think when she says to this reporter, you'll hurt yourself and the community. So this is again they, they claim harm all the time. Political points or inconvenient facts are harmful to the community. You're gonna harm the community by reporting on facts. Not the actual harm being done to the community by bad policies. No, the report is the problem. And you'll hurt yourself, meaning it's kind of like a threat. This won't go well for you as a reporter. So don't go there. Well, he blew the whistle. Good for him. Now we're talking about it. And it's another chapter in the Maxine Waters story, Put to Bed. You're doing great.
2: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: It's a brand new hour on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three, between three and six Eastern every weekday, around the clock on demand on our podcast GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Everything is right there for you. GuyBensonShow.com. Still to come on the show today, a former clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas will be here reacting to calls from some that he be impeached from the Supreme Court. It's not a serious effort, but it's picking up steam. We will get that response from Kerry Severino later in this hour. In the next hour, Bill Malugin one of our national correspondents here at Fox News. He will join us from the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Fox News alert. Dow got hammered today, down 550 points, closing at 34,678. I cannot imagine that that was at least, in some ways, uh, not impacted by the big inflation number released earlier. Another 40-year high on a key inflation metric. We told you about that, some of the details in the previous hour well joining us now from our new york studios is trey yingst fox news foreign correspondent who's here back home for a respite and trey we are so happy to have you back in the usa back home for a while
6: god thanks for having me
0: Uh, delighted to have you here and i want to start with this you were just recently a few days ago if i'm not mistaken at the funeral of one of our colleagues who was killed in that attack in Ukraine, Pierre, a photographer. You've worked with him. Uh, you were in Ireland for those services. I'm just wondering if you can start by telling us a bit about Pierre and what he meant to you and what he was like to work with.
6: Pierre Zakchevsky was the best photojournalist I've ever worked with. We worked together in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Qatar, and most recently in Ukraine. And He was doing this job because he loved people, and he loved to tell stories in places that other people wouldn't go, and that's why he was in Ukraine, and it's where he lost his life, and we were at this funeral service on Tuesday, and it was a great celebration of a man who spent his entire life living one grand adventure, and we will continue to tell stories in his honor just as he would like, and he was a journalist who always got to the front to tell the stories in the most dangerous parts of this world so that people could understand and care about them. And I think those are qualities that every great journalist should have. And like I said, we will continue to display those qualities in our work in his honor.
0: Two follow-ups from that answer. Number one – Given your breadth of experience already, you're still a young guy, but you have reported from a lot of hot spots and dangerous places. You've been all over the place. To say that he was the most talented photojournalist that you've worked alongside in your career, that is quite a testimony. What was so good about his work? How was he so talented?
6: Pierre was always prepared. He brought with him what – many people thought were too many cases of gear, but he wanted to make sure that we would be able to get our report out in any scenario. When we arrived in Ukraine before the war, Pierre and I went to the south in Kherson, and we went to the east to the Donetsk region, and there was one moment that I think is a great example of the type of work that Pierre did. And we were with the interior minister of Ukraine as... Russian-backed separatists started to target this position, totally unexpected, and everyone had to run to safety, but we were deep in the trenches of the front lines, and as we are running from this incoming artillery, everyone is sprinting ahead, and we're actually live on Fox at the time, and so this is all on camera. You can look this up and, and watch his work as it happened in real time. And you see me in the distance trying to get out of the way of this artillery. Everyone's quite fearful. Many people are laying on the ground. They're concerned they're going to be killed by this incoming fire. And Pierre is walking, steady, focused, clean. It's the exact shot you would expect in a studio, and Pierre was providing it in the middle of an active war zone. And I think that is a great example of the type of work that Pierre did, and it's the type of work that we will greatly miss here at Fox with his loss.
0: You also mentioned that at the funeral and the celebration of his life, a lot of it was swapping stories about him as a person. And I never knew Pierre at all. Uh, He was behind the scenes. He was, of course, integral to your work and and the team of people who are out in the field, especially in war zones and around the world. But my understanding is, based on having a few conversations with the people who've known him and worked with him, he was just an incredibly nice, optimistic person as well. You said that You were trading stories back and forth. Is there a story in your mind, maybe professional, maybe personal, that stands out to you that encapsulates who he was as a person?
6: Yeah, it's another story and experience that Pierre and I shared together. We were in Kabul after the Taliban took over in Afghanistan last year, and we went to an amusement park together to talk to Afghan civilians who were now living under Taliban control. And while we were there, we interviewed a mother with her two kids, and the father had been killed in the blast at Hkaya at Kabul's Airport. And as we were conducting this interview, the mom told us that her daughter's birthday was next week, but they couldn't afford a cake for her, and she started to cry. And so before we left the amusement park, Pierre stopped by the snack stand, and he said, I'll take one of everything – And he went and he found this little girl, and he gave her all of the snacks. And he said, how's that for you? Happy birthday. Mm. And the look on the mother's face I'll never forget because she was so thankful of this act of kindness. And it's just one of countless examples that we heard celebrating his life of Pierre being kind to others and expecting nothing in return. And I think that allowed us access when we were working together that other people couldn't get. He could make even the most dangerous men smile. He could make them laugh. There was another time in Afghanistan where we came across the infamous Haqqani network, and this gunman was staying in the presidential palace that they had taken over in Kabul. And later in the day, I see him FaceTiming someone, and he gets off the phone, and I said, who is that? He's like, oh, that was – one of the guys outside the Ministry of Defense earlier, I said, one of the Akani Network fighters? And he said, yeah, yeah, he was showing me the presidential palace. And wow. it just gives you a sense of this guy could make anyone feel comfortable. And that's exactly what you need on your team when you're in the field.
0: Wow. And, of course, the attack killed Pierre, uh, also someone who was helping our production team on the ground, a very young woman, I believe 24, named Sasha. She was also killed. And our colleague, Benjamin Hall, who's been on this program, uh, he was very badly wounded. We know he's recovering. He's in Texas right now. And uh, he'll he'll survive, but he was very banged up. And I'll just be honest with you, Trey. When that news broke, that something had happened, and he was in trouble, you know, he's – roughly my age. I think he's a few years older than I am. He works at this network. We obviously do very different things for the network. It's a totally different line of work in some ways. But it's hard not, at least for me, to just briefly think about, wow, like that is someone who I can relate to, someone that I kind of know a little bit who's roughly my age, same stage of life and career. He works here at Fox. Like It it was just sobering for me thinking that way. I can only imagine the thoughts that went through your mind, because this could have been you, right? This easily could have been you.
6: Yeah. On really any other day, I would have been there with them, and it's difficult to think about, but it's a reality. And Sasha, the fixer, 24 years old, an incredible young woman, she wanted to show the world what was happening to her country, and she lost her life doing that. And... I think that she is an an example of the brave Ukrainian people who are staying behind. Some of them are staying to fight. Others are staying to inform. And this crew, Pierre, Sasha, and Benjamin, a group of remarkable journalists. Benjamin is one of the best journalists I know, and he's one of the strongest people that I know, and I know he'll make a, a full recovery. And look, this is about them, and I think of them often. I think of them every day since this has happened. And I know that Benjamin will heal and he'll get back to doing the work that he loves to do. But it is shocking. You know, it's such a tragic event to take place. It's a nightmare, worst case scenario. But look, I think in this scenario, we we have to continue our role and we have to tell stories in, in their honor. And we'll keep doing that.
0: On that score... What is, in your mind, one of the hardest things for people like me who are just following this story from a very safe distance across in a free country from, you know, radio and television studios and then the American people who are consuming that information at home? What is the hardest thing for us to understand or appreciate about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine? What do you want to convey to us about that situation that you were there covering and living through day in and day out for as long as you were?
6: I think it's the decision that Ukrainian civilians have to make. We talk about the numbers a lot, 4 million Ukrainians that have left the country since this invasion began. That's 4 million people who had to decide, do they leave their homes behind? Do they leave their other family members behind? Do they leave their entire lives, what they've worked to build, to head oftentimes to nowhere? just heading west, hoping to figure it out when they get there. And that's an incredibly difficult decision to make. And I think we cover this story and we look at the numbers of how many have left, but it is just staggering to think about how many families have been torn apart, how many futures have been shattered, and the trauma that these people experience. Even those who were not directly injured by Russian strikes or shelling, they will live with this for the rest of their lives. They will... Think about their home each and every day, and for many, it will be difficult to proceed and live what looks like a normal life because they have just experienced hell on earth, and now they have to decide what to do next, and that's a very difficult thing.
0: With profoundly imperfect knowledge, to put it mildly, about what comes next, right? You've got some of the smartest people in the world making predictions suggesting what their analysis might point to in terms of how this war might resolve or not, how long it might take, how much longer this could all drag on. You have to make those calls with your life and your livelihood and your family on the line with absolutely no idea what the next few steps look like and whether this could get wrapped up relatively quickly, you could return, or not. You know, this could could drag as a quagmire for months and months and months or even longer, that's got to be part of just the unsettled feeling that so many people are experiencing right now over there. And it's it's kind of hard for those of us living relatively comfortable lives so far away to really internalize that. Uh, but you've seen it, and you've told those stories, and you've brought that to our air, Fox News, Fox Business, Fox Radio, and we do appreciate it. Last question, Trey Yangst. You're taking a breather right now. You're in New York. Often you're on the phone somewhere with us around the globe, but here you are sitting in the chair where I typically sit when I'm in New York. Uh, how long is this time for you to be home, and do you have any idea of what's next on the agenda?
6: Look, we're still figuring it out. Um, there's a lot of logistics behind the scenes that go into getting into Ukraine, getting out of Ukraine. Um, I'm not done covering this story by any means. This is one of the focus points of the world right now. And while there's a lot of news happening around the globe, it's an incredibly important story to cover. So I'm certainly not finished. I think for me, I'm deciding what our coverage looks like, what my coverage looks like. I'm always trying to stay up to date on what's happening and certainly taking a little bit of time off here to rest and catch up on some sleep. But It doesn't mean I'm not following along. It doesn't mean I'm not paying attention to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. The reality is this story is continuing, and it's something that I think about a lot. We can escape. We can leave, and so many Ukrainians can't, and so I think it's our responsibility as journalists to continue telling their story and to make sure that the world knows what's happening to the people of Ukraine, the innocent people who had their country invaded, their sovereignty violated by the Russian military.
0: I think that's a really good illustration. Americans who feel ill seeing images on their screens can turn off the screen. They can get the remote control and click a button and go move on to something else. The people living through this cannot, and many of them are responsible for families and children. And I think Empathy is really required here, and there has been some empathy, of course, in the news coverage of this, and then also just a lot of facts, fast-moving facts to bring to our audience. And one of the very best in the business is Trey Yanks. Trey, we're excited to see whatever is next in that coverage. Um, we really appreciate all the work that you do when you get back at it. We'll be praying for your safety. In the meantime, we are just delighted and very pleased to have you safe at home for now. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Guy. Trey Yinkst on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this very short break.
6: Guy Benson will be
2: right back.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We told you yesterday about a U.S. official telling Fox News that the United States has information that the higher-ups in the Kremlin have been shielding Vladimir Putin from the truth about how badly things have gone in Ukraine, how badly things are going for the Russian economy. And that was U.S. intelligence. That assessment has also now been echoed by British intelligence. So given the amount of penetration that the West has into russian communications which has been extraordinary in real time i think that is absolutely something that is not just in the realm of possibility or plausible but maybe even probable at this point point. one of the spy service bosses in the uk is jeremy fleming who runs gchq and that's a lot of sort of the the tech side of the spying and he gave a speech in canberra australia which is the capital city down under, and assessed a few different things on what he's seeing and what GCHQ has gleaned, starting with cut three about Putin's failures.
7: We've seen this strategy before. We saw the intelligence picture building, and now we're seeing Putin trying to follow through on his plan. But it is failing. And his plan B has been more barbarity against civilians and cities. It's clear that he plays by different moral and legal rules. Then cut four. It increasingly looks like Putin has massively misjudged the situation. It's clear he's misjudged the resistance of the Ukrainian people. He underestimated the strength of the coalition his actions would galvanise. He underplayed the economic consequences of the sanctions regime, and he overestimated the abilities of his military to secure a rapid victory.
0: Let's hope those failures continue. It's the Guy Benson Show.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy
0: Benson. From Miami... It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is always GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast free every day on demand. Joining us now is Carrie Severino, president of Judicial Crisis Network, former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She also co-authored the book Justice on Trial with our friend and colleague Molly Hemingway. Carrie, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks so much.
0: I want to just start with your overall impressions of last week's hearings, On the Supreme Court nominee put forward by President Biden, it seems like she's got a majority to get confirmed in the wider Senate. That's not exactly a surprise. My over-under that I pegged on day one of the vacancy being announced was 52 votes. She might get exactly that. We'll see. But just from your perspective, what did you think of her performance, the questions, some of the controversies, etc.?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think you're right. You might be you might be right on the money. I hope your basketball uh, stats were that good. That uh, you know, <laughs> I think her hearings also were unfortunately, um, you know, that not not super surprising because I, I was saying going in, she's going to be saying to almost everything. I don't know. I can't answer this. This is something I can't answer. And that is exactly what we saw. She was saying and she took it to a new level. I mean, every Supreme Court nominee doesn't answer the questions you would love to hear. How are you going to vote on this or that major controversial case? But she took it past cases likely to come before the court, and she went and said she can't talk about even her own judicial philosophy. She said she doesn't have a judicial philosophy. That's pretty intense. There was a famous moment when she told Senator Blackburn she can't define what a woman is. That's taking it pretty far. She wouldn't say whether she had an opinion on court packing. She said she couldn't comment on uh, those kind of efforts to pressure uh, the the, uh, Congress, to add seats to the Supreme Court for purely partisan reasons. That's something that I, I think probably a majority of sitting Supreme Court justices have actually commented on. It's something you're absolutely ethically allowed to comment on. So she's really um, taking this to a new level and then really just trying to be all things to all people by saying, you know, one minute she's saying, oh, yes, I would I would definitely interpret the Constitution according to its original meaning. And I look at the text of laws. And then another minute she's saying, oh, no, I'm not a textualist. I'm not an originalist. And so You're like, what do you believe? I think um, at the end of the day, she made the calculation that with the 50 Democrat senators that have voted for every single one of Biden's nominees, that she, as long as she just kind of kept her head down and didn't say anything, that she would get their vote. And unfortunately, that's what we saw at the end of the day, because uh, now we have Senator Manchin, who is one of the few we might have thought could have gone the other way, has has committed to voting for her.
0: Yeah, no, I was expecting Manchin and Cinema to be on Team blue for this one and for a handful of Republicans probably to cross over as well. Last question about Judge Jackson. You kind of touched on it there. I was reading some stuff from some conservatives and court watchers and experts saying a lot of the things that she was saying, whether you believe it or not, whether she's going to abide by it once she takes the bench or not, separate question. But the things that she was saying, the way that she was framing some of her answers – at least theoretically, are encouraging from a conservative legal standpoint. Do you agree with that, or is it meaningless? Where do you come down on that? Well, look, um, the fact
1: that even Democrat nominees know that to get confirmed in today's environment, you have to at least give lip service to originalism uh, that is encouraging i think it shows that the american people and the, and the democrats even recognize this that they really do want judges who are going to be faithful to the text and the original understanding mm-hmm. of our laws and of the constitution now do i think that she's actually an originalist heck no and if you know if any of the democrats on that committee thought she were they would have been up in arms because if amy coney barrett had the same words coming out of her mouth and, and this is what they did they would be their hair would be on fire how can you believe this how can you say this you know they they know Everyone in the room, I think, knows this is part of what you know you have to say. Just like Justice Kagan said during a her own Kabuki conference. theater. She, this Kabuki theater, she said, you know, we're all originalists now. She's kind of joking, and everyone knows, it. yeah, that's true. And then she goes in the court. Of course, she writes opinions critical of originalism because we know that she's and that's not who she is. She's not another Clarence Tom. Don't 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 be fooled. I don't think anyone in that room. Although Kagan
0: Kagan's better than Sotomayor, I would say, in a number of respects. Right? I mean, it's sort of it's a it's shades of gray. Oh, or maybe shades of blue is the better way of putting it
1: yeah you know she's she 's less likely to go off on a on a kind of heated rhetorical tear like sotomayor is she 's more likely to compromise, but I will have to say many of the times when you see. Uh, Kagan compromising on on an opinion, it's because she's managed to, in exchange for her vote, get the opinion downgraded, get some important language taken out, get a footnote added here or there. So she's very calculated and strategic in her compromises. Um, Maybe some of the good news is I I think Judge uh, Jackson is much more of a Sotomayor in her approach.
0: Meanwhile, we mentioned at the top in your intro that you clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. You have some people now in Congress calling for him to be impeached. Other people saying at the very least he needs to recuse himself from all sorts of cases moving forward based on these text messages revealed involving his wife and what she was texting to Mark Meadows and others around and on January 6th. I will say the text messages are pretty crazy and unhinged to me. Uh, it's, it's disturbing that you have people with proximity to power believing those things, apparently, at the time, and I'm not going to even attempt to defend them at all, the text messages. However, I'm not familiar with the ethics involved when it comes to recusal or certainly when it comes to even being in the ballpark of stepping down or being impeached. My understanding is this does not even come within the same area code of something of that level of seriousness It seems like a political attack against someone that they've always hated. Now they're using his wife to do it. And again, I'm not defending what she wrote, but that is not the same question as recusal or removal. Yes?
1: I think that's 100% right. Say what you will about the content of the messages. This is not the type of thing that requires recusal. And I could go on all day about examples where there was much closer – connections between a, a judge and his or her spouse that was involved, sometimes in the same case at a lower level, and they sat on the case later. You know, Justice Ginsburg sat on a lot of cases where her husband's law partners were involved in them. They sat on cases where they, they themselves had very strong opinions. Justice Breyer practically helped write the sentencing guidelines. And then he sat on a Supreme Court opinion determining whether they were constitutional or not. So the idea that, that because you have a spouse who has strongly held opinions about a topic that you now have to recuse. And, and this is, you know, there's not, a, there's not a specific case that they're even talking to. They're just kind of generally, they want to get rid of Justice Thomas. And here's why. They are there's a lot of important cases coming down the pike. They are worried they're gonna lose some of them, whether it's the Dobbs case on abortion, whether it's the Second Amendment case, the Supreme Court just heard, they want to delegitimize the court and delegitimize Justice Thomas's vote when they do lose those cases. And then as important cases come up, they're hoping to get him off of those cases. But this is nothing new. It's it is focused on Justice Thomas because he's the leader, and I think because there's sort of this, this subtext of racism going on here where it's the outrage that a, a black man would have as he would put it, the audacity. You think for himself and come to a different conclusion, but it's also something they've tried against you know every conservative member of the court in one case or another as well. They just have a double standard where they just anything they can do to get a conservative off the court. It's like the reverse of court packing. If we can't add you know liberal justices for political reasons, maybe we'll find some political reason to subtract a conservative justice from a case or two.
0: Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, was asked about this earlier, and she just went straight to the kind of bare-bones, anti-Thomas talking point in Cut 28. Listen. Do you agree with members of your caucus who are saying that Clarence Thomas should resign?
1: I don't think he should have ever been appointed, so let me take it back.
0: I don't think he ever should have been appointed. Okay. I mean, if we want to play their games, because I know a lot of the fake umbrage last week was about people daring to question a woman of color, right, and that was what they were going to hide behind no matter what the question was, if I'm – Using their terminology correctly, would this not be a racially problematic erasure of a black man from a white woman? That's what I think we just heard, Carrie, based on their rules and their standards. Uh, yep, yep. Now, if only their
1: standards actually applied to both parties, because we no, know, never. you know, we know that it's not really about that. Because obviously, President Biden filibustered Janice Rogers Brown, who could have been the first black woman on the Supreme Court, filibustered Miguel Estrada, who could have been the first Hispanic on the Supreme Court. You know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's not about making the court look like America, as they like to say. It's, it's making the court vote like we want. And that's, that's yes. the only bottom line they're going for.
0: Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, the obvious way to puncture the talking point is to ask, like with truth serum, which would you rather have? Nine white, cisgendered, heterosexual, Liberal men who will vote the way that you want on every case or a rainbow of cultural and racial diversity among nine justices who are conservative and won't vote your way. The people on the left who talk about this stuff would every single day of the week and twice on Sunday take – the Nine White Liberal Dudes, because it's about outcomes, it's not really about diversity. That's one of the tools that they use, but the goal always is power.
1: Absolutely. They, they, they are using that as a, as a shield, but it's really all about how can we get more people to adopt our Agenda on the court. That's why you know they weren't happy with just any black woman, because we know that the the, the groups pushing for uh, Judge Jackson wanted only the most extreme black woman that the president was looking at for this position. So they're they're not they're not wanting some potentially moderate black woman, and obviously not a conservative uh, on on the bench. They want the most liberal right. nominee they can possibly get. And even with fifty senators, they know that they're going to hold the line, and uh, they can they don't have to moderate, even though they have the barest majority possible. They just want For the fences, and that looks like what they're going to get.
0: Lastly, very briefly, when we spoke prior to the hearings, there was news breaking that Justice Thomas was in the hospital. He was under treatment for a few more days, I think, than some of us expected, and then he was released. Do you have an update on his condition? Is he fully recovered? Is he doing well and healthy?
1: Uh, Yeah, you know, he's still he's still hearing cases from home, but he's participating in the oral arguments. That's one of the, you know, I guess random blessings we've had from COVID is a lot of an understanding about how we can do things remotely so he he's able to participate in the arguments and even in in, in past times we've had people who haven't been able to attend arguments because they were sick and this before the line of uh, tele <laughs> teleconferences we have and uh, we're able to participate so he he just needs to rest up but he's been keeping up with his work even from the, the first few days he's in the hospital he was uh you know, reading cases, keeping up with his work, um, I think it just takes a little time to get through that course of antibiotics and back on his feet.
0: Carrie Severino is the president at the Judicial Crisis Network. She's former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, her book with Molly Hemingway, Justice on Trial, about the Kavanaugh Circus. Carrie, thank you. Thanks. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I saw this clip late last night, and I laughed out loud. I was in an Uber heading from the airport to a hotel, and I literally laughed out loud in the backseat. And I watched it again. The Republican National Committee clipped it. It was from an event featuring, of course, our beloved Vice President Kamala Harris. And she was talking about U.S. policy in Jamaica. And she was there as the spokesperson for the Biden administration. And as usual, she seemed a little bit lost and underprepared and just kicking up this whole storm, like this little blizzard of words. And the words were confusing. And when you step back and just listen to her try to create these sentences and just like the syntax and the emphasis, the whole thing is just It's just the best. And I'm struck, how? How is she this bad at this? How? She's been in politics for years. I don't remember her being quite this bad on the campaign trail. I don't. Is she getting worse? Is it like in her head? I don't know. But we've been counting down some of her greatest hits on this show now for weeks. We just recently had the pleasure of hearing her thoughts and her rhapsodizing on the significance of the passage of time, a phrase that she used four times in about 30 seconds with a knowing smirk and nod as if something very profound was being communicated when indeed nothing profound was being communicated. Indeed, nothing at all was being communicated in that little sermon that we got from her there on the significance of the passage of time. I still think my all-time favorite was the Craig Melvin NBC interview where he was asking about changing policy or pivoting on COVID policy. And she seemed deer in the headlights, stunned by the question, and said, it is time to do what we have been doing. And that time is every day. So... I'm not entirely sure, this will be up to you, how the most recent entry stacks up against some of those other ones. But this one is just a joy. It is a joy to watch. It's a joy to listen to. Even the actual text, like the the transcript of this passage, reads poorly. And then it somehow looks even worse when you watch it. And sounds worse when you listen to it. Again, she's trying to communicate some things here. I think I can piece together generally what she's trying to say. But she's just infusing her delivery with a bunch of formal sounding buildups that just ultimately sound like gibberish. As opposed to something that's smart or coherent. Without further ado, here's our vice president. On Jamaica, cut 25.
8: We also recognize, just as it has been in the United States for Jamaica, one of the issues that has been presented as an issue that is economic in the way of its impact has been the pandemic. So to that end, we are announcing today also that we will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery um, by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts (laughs) in Jamaica that have been essential to, I believe, what is necessary to strengthen not only uh, the, the, the issue of public health, but also the economy.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. OK. So one of the issues that has been presented as an issue that is economic in the way of impact has been pandemic. Got it. So to that end, right there's a smart little phrase there, we're announcing that we will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts. We're going to assist Jamaica, you guys, in COVID recovery. How? Oh, by assisting in terms of the recovery. Well, QED, that's good stuff. And then she just clarifies that the efforts in Jamaica have been essential to what is necessary to strengthen not only that, the issue of public health, but also the economy. So what she's saying is the Jamaican economy got hit, as did ours, We're here to help on public health and on their economy. That's all she's saying. But it's just endless filler words from her. One of my friends has made this observation. Some people use filler words in public speaking to bridge the gap to their next thought. Ultimately, she's like 80% filler words and very few thoughts. There is no point exactly. And she tries to make it so formal sounding that it is super phony sounding. And so let's add that one to the montage. Letter rip, cut 26.
8: We will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery um, by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts in Jamaica that have been essential to, I believe, what is necessary to strengthen. The significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's good. That montage is going to become 10 minutes long within a month, isn't it? The Guy Benson Show continues. Final hour coming up from Florida. Stay with us. From Miami, it's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is ubiquitous down here, and it is delicious. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Check it out. Try it out. They're expanding. You can see where they might be sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21-plus only. And our website here at the show, for all ages, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast-free, every single day, on demand. We hope you'll check that out, GuyBensonShow.com. As we begin our final hour, let's hop from Florida to Texas, Eagle Pass, where our colleague Bill Melugin is standing by. He is at the border. He's been covering that issue now for months. He's back down there. And, Bill, it's good to have you back on the show.
4: Always glad to join you, Guy.
0: Thanks for having me. Let's just start with your observations from Eagle Pass. What are you seeing with your own eyes?
4: Well, literally, as I'm talking to you on the phone right now, I am watching a group of illegal immigrants walk across the Rio Grande about 100 yards away from me. And then directly on top of me, uh, on the international bridge, about 50 yards from me, I'm watching a group of illegal immigrants be Title 42'd back to Mexico. Uh, So that's basically what you're going to get every five minutes out here is people crossing, people being expelled. Uh, But as I'm sure you've heard, they're talking about dropping Title 42, which is going to be absolute Chaos down here at the border. Um, DHS says if it drops, their projections are they need to prepare for upwards of 18,000 illegal crossings every single day. And just to put that in perspective for you about how catastrophic that would be, right now it's about 7,000 illegal crossings a day, and everything is over capacity and everything is overwhelmed. So uh, you're talking of more than doubling if Title 42 drops.
0: Wait, so the current capacity is overwhelmed as it stands at 7,000 a day, you double that and then bump it up even further, which is what they're worried will happen in peak season post-Title 42 going away. And, I mean, I don't know, we're like running out of words, Bill. We call it a crisis. It's currently a crisis, obviously. Then the crisis blows up even worse. And as we were talking about with Katie Pavlich here on the show yesterday, it does seem like the White House and the administration realizes that the policy that they're about to change will result – in an even bigger, gigantic humanitarian mess and challenge to our sovereignty. And they're kind of trying to set that expectation, even though it's their policies that are bringing it about. It's this kind of weird dance that they're doing.
4: Exactly. And you know what's so remarkable about all of this is just the other day, the U.S. Border Patrol chief went on record on camera and said, this week we are going to hit one million illegal crossings. In just the last six months, just think about that one million in six months. That puts us on pace to shatter every single border record going all the way back to when records first started being kept more than 60 years ago. Okay, and the crazy thing is the busiest months haven't even started yet. April, May, June, July. I mean, last summer we were having in the hot summer months that everybody said was seasonal. We were having over 200,000 migrants in June, July, August. And we're only in March right now, and we already have $1 million in the last six months, the cold, fall, winter months. So, And that's with Title 42 in place. So you can imagine how bad this is going to explode once the word gets around to migrants that, hey, if we cross, Title 42 is gone. We're not immediately going to get expelled back to Mexico. Uh, there's going to be a huge surge on the border. In DHS, I'm actually quite frankly astonished that they're putting these projections out of, 18,000 a day, and uh, they even said uh, they expect within the first six weeks of Title 42 dropping to get half a million people at the border.
0: I mean, mean, even if that's ballpark correct, even if they're shooting significantly above what's actually going to happen, the numbers are going to be absolutely astounding. And 18,000 a day, just to visualize, we've been watching the NCAA tournament here, and Most of those games, the Final Four, they move into a larger venue. But for most of the games, you know, Sweet 16, Elite 8, these are arenas, NBA-sized arenas, that are packed to the gills with screaming fans. And the larger end of those arenas are about 18,000 capacity. So imagine, like, the United Center in Chicago, filled to the brim. That number of people arriving daily at the southern border every single day is what they're anticipating upcoming and that does not count correct me if i'm wrong bill that does not encounter gotaways known and unknown right these are just what they're expecting to encounter
4: that's correct those are only the ones they catch does not include known gotaways and unknown gotaways which are already in the several hundreds of thousands
0: within what within the last few months
4: Within the last six months, I'm told that there are over a quarter million known gotaways by DHS sources just within the last six months. Last year, there were over 400,000.
0: So the pace, obviously, is much worse now. The trajectory is much worse. Those are known gotaways, people that our people had eyes on or were detected with drones or sensors or other technology. We just didn't have the wherewithal, the people, the manpower, whatever, to go get them. There's an entire third category of unknown gotaways, people who really effectively and efficiently slip into the country without being detected. That is an unknown number. And that's the group that I'm often most concerned about because that's a very high level of sophistication. And people who really don't want to get caught will go to great lengths to avoid it. And they don't want to get caught for a reason. That is you know, sort of the public safety, maybe national security picture coming in there. I want to play for you, Bill. This is a soundbite that I saw yesterday. Border Patrol official named Gloria Chavez. I'm sure people will try to call her a racist, although her name is Gloria Chavez. She is one of our people tasked and sworn to uphold a duty to protect our border and enforce our sovereignty. She was doing this give-and-take Q&A on stage. And here's what she said in Cut 30. Listen.
5: Border barrier is a needed tool for Border Patrol agents as I mentioned um, in my remarks, especially as an officer safety tool, they work 24-7. That night, the evening hours is one that becomes very busy for them because the adversary takes advantage of that. And when I say adversary, yes, I'm talking about cartels. And I'm talking about transnational criminal organizations and human smuggling organizations who at the end of the day, it's a commodity that they're trying to push between the ports of entry. So without barrier, we become more vulnerable. We the men and women of the Border Patrol. So barrier is very critical. Is it needed? Absolutely. It's a tool in the toolbox, right?
0: Is it needed? Absolutely. She's talking about a border barrier. That's the term she's using. If you want to use a different word just to pick one at random, you could say wall, for example. And, Bill, I mean, it almost seems like we are collectively on drugs, where we are having a debate about whether or not physical barriers ...can be effective in stopping illegal crossings of that barrier. And if there is none, people just walk in. If there is one, it's harder. And yet we have a lot of people who just repeat a talking point mindlessly that walls don't work. And I'm not saying a wall would be the be-all, end-all and solve all the problems and be a magic bullet. But it seems like, as she says... As Ms. Chavez says there, it would be an important tool in the toolbox, and you have a lot of people committed to making sure that tool is never placed into the toolbox. What do you hear about that issue? It feels a little bit antiquated, like 2016 politics, but just because Trump's gone and not talking about a wall every day doesn't mean that the actual issue as an enforcement mechanism is irrelevant, right? Exactly.
4: And first off, Gloria Chavez knows what she's talking about. She's the sector chief for El Paso sector. And luckily for her, El Paso sector actually has a decent amount of border wall. The areas where we cover the worst areas, guess what? Rio Grande Valley, Del Rio sector, they have barely any wall whatsoever. Ding, ding, ding. Why do you think the numbers are so high? I mean, I'm sure you've seen our live shots in La Jolla over and over with that half-completed wall just sitting in the field, not connected to anything with migrants walking around it. The Every Border Patrol agent I talk to says the wall is important for one specific reason. They all want it because it's a force multiplier. There are only about 20,000 agents across the entire country. When you have upwards of 2 million people crossing, they can't be everywhere at once. They can't be out in the open desert or out in you know th- what a wall does is it allow it it, it funnels migrants it, it's mm-hmm. a force multiplier for them so agents don't it, have it to be it concentrates areas
0: yes. for patrol and and areas of of emphasis because it forces illegal immigrants into specific areas for the most part exactly
4: right? exactly 100% correct
0: Let's talk about the timing just a little bit here Bill because We've been using this term, Title 42. You've explained it on the program before. I think through context clues people understand this this expedited expulsion tool because of the pandemic that the Biden administration, following the lead of the Trump administration, has been using a fair amount. They have not been doing traditional deportations through ICE almost at all. I mean, those numbers have plummeted. They've been Title 42-ing people a lot. They're under huge pressure to get rid of Title 42, and they're saying, okay, the Pandemic's coming to an end. The emergency is over. They've been arguing to get rid of it, even at the height of the pandemic. This is just something that open borders people want to get rid of because it's one enforcement tool. and They don't like any enforcement tools. But the Biden people are under this pressure from activists, people in their own party. So they're about to do it. I saw a Wall Street Journal report. I'm sure you did as well. And we reported on it here yesterday that the tentative date to end Title 42 would be in May. Am I correct that May is more or less peak season already in terms of seasonality for this? So it would be like pouring gas on a fire that would otherwise be at its peak anyway?
4: Exactly. It is. You know, May, June, those spring months. And the thing is, if they go ahead and broadcast that, okay, you know, about two months from now, we're going to drop Title 42. You know what's going to happen? All these Mexican border cities like the one I'm across from right now, Piedras Negras, They, in the next coming weeks, are going to have a huge surge of migrants who show up to the cities and stay there and just wait for Title 42 to drop, whether it's Reynosa, Ciudad Acuna, Piedras Negras. They will sit there and wait by the thousands. Once it drops, you're going to get a huge rush, and I wouldn't be surprised if we we see something similar to what we saw in Del Rio last summer with the the mass group of Haitians coming across.
0: At what point, because you've been on this beat now for quite some time, And as you and I have talked about here, it sometimes feels like a bit of a lonely beat in terms of national attention. It comes and goes occasionally, ebbs and flows based on, you know, a specific acute moment of crisis. And then they'll say, oh, look, this is still happening. Is there a way for us to blame America or Border Patrol? They'll do the hit job, then they'll move on, what Rush used to talk about as the drive-by media, you're not driving by the border. You've been at the border month after month after month, going home occasionally, but you've been there a ton. At what point does the rest of the national press start to show up again with their furrowed brows and their live shots? When does that happen? And then, like, what's the appetite in terms of covering it extensively? Like, is it a box-checking exercise based on what you've seen? I'm just trying to get a sense of when the rest of the country might start to wake up to the realities that you are preparing us for on this show and on Fox on a regular basis?
7: Well,
4: I'm old enough to remember when politicians like AOC were showing up in Torneo and, cry, you know, taking photographs, crying, leaning on yeah. fences because of children in cages or bad conditions or overcrowding. That's uh, – where are they now? I mean – People have seen the images from Donna facility completely overflowing. The last three weeks. Well, she I've was on vacation on in Miami.
0: I think I think at least sometime recently yeah. she oh, took yeah. a vacation in Miami, yeah. which is nice. I'm here right. now. I'm not blaming her, but go on.
4: Yeah. Well, and then the other big thing was uh, kids in cages and, and children separated from their families. We all remember that uh, Time magazine cover of the little girl crying, and it ended up being a false narrative. But the last three weeks, I've had to report on multiple little girls Full, ages four and five who have drowned in the Rio Grande. Where, where is the outrage? Where is the sorrow? Where is the tweets? Where you know? It, did anybody even hear about those deaths? Were they ever covered? You know, it's it's it, it, you don't hear anything about it. And the other aspect is these human smugglers are just rolling in the money right now because the United States government is essentially finishing the final leg of human smuggling for them. They know if they come to the border and drop a child over the wall in the open desert, that the United States is not going to expel or deport that child. It's going to be taken in and reunited with family in the country. And that's why people are willing to pay these cartels thousands of dollars to get their kids across, to get themselves across. Even if they get Title 42, if they try again, we're basically not prosecuting anybody for repeat reentry, which used to be a felony. So there's no risk for them to, to try it again. They're just going to get kicked back to Mexico over and over until they finally get in. It's just, yeah, it's and, just like a hamster in a wheel.
0: Uh, and the wheel's about to get a lot bigger in the coming months, and even the White House is recognizing it. And look, I don't blame our officials. I don't blame our policy for not saying, oh, well, if there's a toddler stuck in the desert somewhere, you know, we're going to go help them. Of course, that's what we should do. What I do blame is the incentive structure that has been set up by these politicians, clearly, unapologetically, they've boasted about it to their activist friends, and then they kind of just hope that people don't hear the stories that you're telling, Bill, which is why we have you here all the time to tell them because you're not shouting into a void. You're shouting maybe into a void, but there's a lot of us listening in that void, and I think many more people are going to be forced to pay attention to this story because of the coming catastrophe that you've laid out for us here today. Bill Malugin is a Fox News correspondent and national correspondent. He is in Eagle Pass, Texas, at the U.S.-Mexico border, doing good work as always. Bill, we always appreciate your time. Thank you, Guy. Appreciate it. Happy to join you again. We'll do it soon. It is the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this short break.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. I saw some tweets about this, and I know producer Christine is interested in it because she might want to sign up for her daughter, Megan, who's eight. Our friends over at The Daily Wire have announced a huge investment, like tens of millions of dollars, in creating children's programming, kids' shows, to rival some of the wokeness that's coming out of Disney. We've talked a lot about Disney here on a host of subjects. This is just the latest one out of Florida. But I guess the Daily Wire saying, okay, if that's what Disney's going to do, maybe there's a gap in the market here. We can fill it and create some kids' programming from a non-leftist perspective. And all I can say is I hope that one of the offerings is Ben Shapiro reading children's books, like bedtime stories, at 100 miles an hour to the kiddos as they try to go to bed. And then the communist cow jumped over the moon. And was blown out of the sky by a U.S. stinger missile. The end. Sweet dreams. All right, I think that would be some good stuff. I'm not sure if the kid would be asleep anytime soon. But that might be something I would even sign up for. Christine, would you actually do this? (laughs) I'm
9: dying right now. (laughs) That was very funny. Um, Yeah, sure, I'm all for this. I I, I would love for Ben Shapiro to read some princess fairy tale story uh, so Megan can fall asleep at night. Would love to see how that goes.
0: Yeah, you'd have to slow down the recording for kids to make heads or tails of what he's saying.
9: Honestly, it's really not a bad idea. But I, I get why he's doing what he's doing, and I think it's actually going to be very successful. Um, I hope War Wyatt closes his ears, but I'm about to cancel my Disney+. Plus.
0: Oh, boy. That's another one. This, boys and girls, is a fact. Does it care about your feelings? No. No, go to bed. Daddy's writing another book. <laughs> Quick break. Right back. It's the Guy Benson Show.
2: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: On the show today, we were joined earlier by Trey Yinks, our colleague here at Fox News, foreign correspondent at the network. He's been in Ukraine, he's really been everywhere. Just recently attended the funeral of our colleague who was killed in Ukraine, Pierre, who he'd worked with multiple times. Here's part of my conversation with Trey, who is in New York today. Really interesting stuff. Have a listen. Given your breadth of experience already, you're still a young guy, but you have reported from a lot of hot spots and dangerous places. You've been all over the place. To say that he was the most talented photojournalist that you've worked alongside in your career, that is quite a testimony. What was so good about his work? How was he so talented?
6: Pierre was always prepared. He brought with him what many people thought were too many cases of gear, but he wanted to make sure that we would be able to get our report out in any scenario. When we arrived in Ukraine before the war, Pierre and I went to the south in Kherson, and we went to the east to the Donetsk region, and there was one moment that I think is a great example of the type of work that Pierre did. And we were with the interior minister of Ukraine as Russian-backed separatists started to target this position. Totally unexpected, and everyone had to run to safety. But we were deep in the trenches of the front lines. And as we are running from this incoming artillery, everyone is sprinting ahead. And we're actually live on Fox at the time. And so this is all on camera. You can look this up and, and watch his work as it happened in real time. And you see me in the distance trying to get out of the way of this artillery. Everyone's quite fearful. Many people are laying on the ground. They're concerned they're going to be killed by this incoming fire. And Pierre is walking, steady, focused, clean. It's the exact shot you would expect in a studio, and Pierre was providing it in the middle of an active war zone. And I think that is a great example of the type of work that Pierre did And it's the type of work that we will greatly miss here at Fox with his loss.
0: You also mentioned that at the funeral and the celebration of his life, a lot of it was swapping stories about him as a person. And I never knew Pierre at all. Uh, He was behind the scenes. He was, of course, integral to your work and and the team of people who are out in the field, especially in war zones and around the world. But... My understanding is, based on having a few conversations with the people who've known him and worked with him, he was just an incredibly nice, optimistic person as well. You said that you were trading stories back and forth. Is there a story in your mind, maybe professional, maybe personal, that stands out to you that encapsulates who he was as a person?
6: Yeah, it's another story and experience that Pierre and I shared together. We were in Kabul after the Taliban took over. In Afghanistan last year, and we went to an amusement park together to talk to Afghan civilians who were now living under Taliban control. And while we were there, we interviewed a mother with her two kids, and the father had been killed in the blast at HKIA, at Kabul's airport. And as we were conducting this interview, the Mom told us that her daughter's birthday was next week, but they couldn't afford a cake for her, and she started to cry. And so before we left the amusement park, Pierre stopped by the snack stand, and he said, I'll take one of everything. And he went and he found this little girl, and he gave her all of the snacks. And he said, how's that for you? Happy birthday. Mm. And the look on the mother's face I'll never forget because she was so thankful of this act of kindness – And it's just one of countless examples that we heard celebrating his life of Pierre being kind to others and expecting nothing in return. And I think that allowed us access when we were working together that other people couldn't get. He could make even the most dangerous men smile. He could make them laugh. There was another time in Afghanistan where we came across the infamous Haqqani network and this gunman was staying in the presidential palace that they had taken over in Kabul. And later in the day, I see him FaceTiming someone, and he gets off the phone, and I said, who is that? And he's like, oh, that was one of the guys outside the Ministry of Defense earlier. And I said, one of the Akani Network fighters? And he said, yeah, yeah, he was showing me the presidential palace. And wow. <laughs> it just gives you a sense of this guy could make anyone feel comfortable, and that's exactly what you need on your team when you're in the field.
0: Wow. And, of course, the attack killed Pierre, uh, also someone who was helping our production team on the ground, a very young woman, I believe 24, named Sasha. She was also killed. And our colleague, Benjamin Hall, who's been on this program, uh, he was very badly wounded. We know he's recovering. He's in Texas right now, and uh, he'll he'll survive, but he was very banged up. And I'll just be honest with you, Trey, when that news broke – That something had happened, and he was in trouble. You know, he's roughly my age. I think he's a few years older than I am. He works at this network. We obviously do very different things for the network. It's a totally different line of work in some ways. But it's hard not, at least for me, to just briefly think about, wow, like, that is someone who I can relate to, someone that I kind of know a little bit, who's roughly my age, same stage of life and career. He works here at Fox, like... It was just sobering for me thinking that way. I can only imagine the thoughts that went through your mind because this could have been you, right? This easily could have been you.
6: Yeah. On really any other day, I would have been there with them. And it's difficult to think about, but it's a reality.
0: My full interview with Trey Yinkst, Fox News foreign correspondent, is available online at guybensonshow.com. Also the whole show free of charge on Demand as well. That's on the podcast. guybensonshow.com, foxnews.podcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch some updates on the Hollywood Oscars slap drama. We will bring you up to speed right after this.
2: For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com.
0: Home stretch, Guy Benson Show, guybensonshow.com, podcast always free. I think we're on day four, five of Slapgate. People still talking about what happened at the Oscars with Will Smith hitting Chris Rock on stage. I mean, people have played this clip so many times and they've slowed it down in different angles. It's like the Zapruder film. Just much less important. But are we going to talk about it again? You bet. I saw that O.J. Simpson weighed in on this. He posted a video on his Twitter feed, and he took a stab at it. He had a few thoughts. I thought it was actually a pretty sharp take from O.J., and he was blaming Will, saying he shouldn't have done it. Will Smith shouldn't have done it, but he understands the impulse. Because if there's one guy who always defends the honor of his wife, it's definitely O.J. Simpson, right? Yeah. I saw someone tweet, O.J. was probably disappointed in Will Smith because O.J. doesn't believe in such half measures. Chris Rock was doing a stand-up gig in Boston. He talked about it. It was on tape. Cut 15.
3: I don't have like a bunch of about what happened. So if you came to hear that, I'm not, I had like a whole show I wrote before (laughs) this weekend. And I'm still kind of processing what happened. Like, at some point, I'm talking about (laughs) this.
0: So basically, he's going to let the dust settle. And at some point down the line, he's going to do some material on it. And I am eager to hear that material. Now, separately but relatedly, I saw this on Twitter. And again, take this with a grain of salt. I've seen everything you can imagine. There was a poll that purported to show that by huge margins, every group of Americans across racial and demographic and political differences, all those divides basically disappeared on this where the vast majority of people blamed Will Smith and a relative handful blamed Chris Rock. Then there was another poll claiming or purporting to show that most Americans blame Chris Rock. I really have trouble believing that one. And then there's Twitter data. I guess someone did sort of data aggregation, and they went state-by-state measuring, I guess – through some algorithm, sentiment of tweets about the incident. And the overwhelming number of states were siding with Chris Rock over Will Smith, but not all of them. So they have a map. And the red states on this map, as opposed to the purple states, are the ones apparently where at least Twitter sentiment was more on the side of Will Smith. And to call this imprecise science, I think, is a vast understatement, but it's interesting, so I'll just share it anyway, plus the stakes are very low and it doesn't matter. So you've got, let's see here, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Iowa, actually all the uh, early presidential states, according to this, Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina are on Will Smith's side, based on this metric. But also Missouri, Kansas... Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama. If you did not hear your state mentioned in the list that I just ran down, that's because you are one of these purple states on the map, and you are on Team Chris Rock. And that includes the states where all of us here on Team Benson reside. I would love to know if this is anywhere close to true and why, because... Most of the states that are at least supposedly sympathetic toward Will Smith are pretty deep red states concentrated in the middle of the country and the south, except for New Hampshire. New Hampshire is always a little bit weird, and I say that with love. right? They've got a strange streak to them. They're very independent. Maybe they said, oh, I see everyone else is going after Will Smith. Well, screw that. We're on his side. I don't know. But I am definitely firmly in the Chris Rock camp on this one. There's also video going around of Jada Pinkett Smith, Will's wife, her reaction, right? Her apparently offended reaction, and then laughing, and then clapping. Christine, you've been watching this far too much. What do you make of Jada's real-time reactions?
9: It was either she was just being fake because there was a camera there, so she's like, "Let me just, you know, sit here and clap quietly and not make a scene," because my husband's probably already done that. Or maybe she thought it was part of it. I, I really don't know. The the Smiths, in as a whole, confuse me now. And like I said, you know, in the beginning of the week, I am no longer a fan of Will, and I just think that he did such damage to his career, his reputation. I don't see how anybody could really be on his side. I mean, Chris Rock was telling jokes, and that's what happens at these ceremonies that's what they're they're hired for, so um I'm sure we're going to see Will Smith sitting at the you know the round table what is it called the red table that Jada does or her
0: youtube show i don't I don't follow it
9: you don't follow the red table I'm nope. shocked.
0: I I don't even know what that is. She does a
9: show with her mother, um, and they talk about a lot of things. And it's like an
0: internet show. Mm-hmm. Oh, and okay. I'm yeah, sure Will
9: will be on there crying and boo and they're going to talk about their process of healing and what they've learned from this, and uh-huh.
0: try to Did move on. Did you hear the report that the Oscars asked him to leave after the incident happened, and he refused to? Because that that was being reported earlier, and then I saw a contradictory report, I think, from TMZ saying, no, he was not asked to leave. He did not refuse to leave. They were considering it, but it was not something that they brought to him. I don't honestly know what to believe there, but obviously I think there's spin attempts and damage control on a lot of people's part right now.
9: Yeah, so the latest right now that's fronting most of, you know, publications about this is saying that no, no, no one told him to leave. I have a feeling that's coming, obviously, from his camp, and that the the main show producer, Will Packer, had, had said to him, to Will Smith, no, you can stay. So I'm not sure. I mean, I don't see how the Academy could just come out and lie like that. I think there's probably a lot of confusion, um, and this— <sighs> We thought the story was going to end, but I think this has a shelf life.
0: See, my initial reaction seeing the clip on the Internet, because as I mentioned on Monday, I wasn't watching, but I saw the clip pretty soon after on the Internet, and I was like, oh, this is fake, right? This is some sort of a bit, and that's obviously what the crowd in the hall thought because Will Smith marches up there, and everyone's like, oh, and starts, you know, cheering, And then the slap is delivered, and I think you hear still clapping and laughing. People are still assuming, because it's a bunch of actors and, you know, entertainment, drama, whatever. They assume it's a bit. And that was still my assumption until Will Smith, very agitated and clearly angry, was screaming F-bombs back in his chair up at Chris Rock. That is when things got very awkwardly silent in the room. And that's when I was like, oh, maybe if this was scripted, I don't think this part would be in the script. So maybe this was real. And then, of course, it turned out, yes, it was real. But for a while, my gut was this was planned. And it was a stage slap and all of that. And, you know, apparently not.
9: You weren't alone. Everybody thought this was probably staged. Um,. I'm just going to put it out there. I didn't. I, I knew right away. I'm like, oh, my gosh. This probably was not supposed to happen. Because the, immediately after that, they just hit the mute button. And I said, I don't think they would have done that for this long if this was supposed to be some sort of bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's true. That's why we have the dump button here on the show. You never mm-hmm. know when Cookie's going to fly off the handle and we just hit a special magic red button. Wyatt's in control of it. He actually controls several big red buttons, and I hope he never confuses them, frankly. There's the cookie-dump button, then the nukes, right? So I think he's got that pretty well at hand, I hope. But, you know, we have that uh, real-time tool just in case, you know, it's maybe the happy hours start a little early on a Tuesday, and you just decide to jump in and yell at someone and go off in some way. We have protections against that here at the program and obviously they did as well uh, on a much bigger stage at the oscars although at the rate that their ratings have been going at least the overall trajectory maybe we'll catch up with them at some point here christine but i just am thankful for that technology
9: um you've never had to please i don't want the boss to hear this right now and think that you guys have had to dan can you please come on and say you've never had to dump me
2: I've, since I've been here, I've never had to dump Christine. I can, I can confirm that.
0: Christine, are you claiming you've never been dumped? I find that hard to believe. Well,
9: I, both. Never been dumped on air and never been dumped in real life. I'm the dumper.
0: Every breakup was initiated I'm by you? I'm the dumper. <laughs> Every time? Every time. Wow. So Cookie never had her little heart broken?
9: No, not really. I'm the heartbreaker.
0: Yeah. Just ask Carousel. we gotta run we're out of time we're gonna leave it right there back here tomorrow from miami in florida it's the guy benson show we're almost to friday we'll talk to you then thank you for listening